One of the odd things about what I do is that although I talk a lot about living in the present moment, part of my thinking is always directed towards the next thing. So I was actually thinking about Lent in the build-up to Christmas. I ordered the Worship in the Wilderness material on which I've based the sermon series and Lent reflections over the last few weeks just before Christmas and it arrived just after New Year. Knowing that one of the sermons was going to go out on the day I reached, shall we say, a significant birthday, I went to see what I'd be speaking on that day. And I had to chuckle. The actual title in the book was A Sorrowful Journey. I changed it to A Journey of Lament. Happy birthday, Andrew, I thought. Maybe it is quite appropriate. Today I'll probably be wondering where all those years have gone or mourning a lost youth. But before I dive in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us in all things, in the good times, the bad, the mountains and the wilderness. And you long to speak to us wherever we are, however we come now. So we open ourselves to receive it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Moses is out in the wilderness one day, looking after his father-in-law's sheep. Suddenly something catches his eye. It's a bush, it's on fire, yet it doesn't seem to be burning up. That's all he thinks, and wanders across to have a look. When suddenly, to his utter surprise, the bush speaks to him. Moses! Moses! And at first Moses thinks, I must be imagining things. I've been out in this desert too long. I'm hearing voices. I think a bush is talking to me. But the voice comes again. Moses! Moses! Hey, who's talking to me? Who do you think? It's God. God? Yes, God. No way, says Moses. No, says God, you'll find it's Yahweh, actually. The jokes don't get any better when you went through a new decade, it seems. But over this Lent season, we have been considering the theme of worship in the wilderness. We've seen how the Bible uses the idea or image of wilderness in a couple of different ways. It's a tough place, a place of struggle, isolation, temptation, danger. But it's also a place of encounter and transformation where people encounter God in ways they've never done before and might never otherwise have done. Living close to London, we might be tempted to romanticise the idea of getting away from it all, seeking, as Ruth talked about last week, a bit of peace and escape from the rat race. In lockdown, we might romanticise the idea of getting anywhere at all. Such a romantic notion of wilderness would not have gained much traction with people in Bible times. Whilst wilderness might be a place of encounter and transformation out of which God could bring good things, it was not a place of peace and quiet. It was a place of danger. Tom Wright describes it well. 
The wilderness became a haunt of wild animals. The desert offered criminals a place to hide and plot. And open spaces between towns and cities were lawless, dangerous places from which travellers would be eager to escape by scurrying into the next built-up area. As we saw when we looked at Mark's account of Jesus in the wilderness a couple of weeks ago, wilderness is not a place of our choosing. It comes to us in all sorts of form, in sorrow, loss, hardship, sickness. It's kind of thrust on us. We're thrown into it. It can feel hostile and dangerous. And like travellers in the biblical wilderness, when we face it, we can yearn just to get through as quickly as possible. It's a place where we can feel alone, abandoned, forgotten, let down. Perhaps by others, but quite often by God. Both Bible passages which we shared today had characters who felt like that. There's a raw honesty in the two sisters we encounter in John's Gospel. Both of them say word for word exactly the same thing to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. There's a kind of, where were you, slap to the comments. It's like an accusation. When Lazarus was ill, they'd sent word to Jesus, hoping, probably assuming he would rush to help. Perhaps they didn't even think he'd have to come. Maybe they'd heard of the Roman centurion who'd come to Jesus seeking the healing of a servant. Or the official from Capernaum who came to Jesus when his son was dying. Jesus had simply told them, you can go on home, it'll be okay. And they returned to find that what Jesus had told them actually happened. Their loved ones had been healed just when Jesus had spoken. Mary and Martha had seen him do it for so many others. Complete strangers. People who wanted nothing more to do with him after they'd got what they wanted. A lot of them never even came back to say thanks. Whereas they were among his closest friends. Surely Jesus would want to help them. But Jesus had neither healed Lazarus from a distance nor come rushing when they called for him. In fact, Jesus left it so long, Lazarus had been dead four days by the time Jesus showed up. So those same words, those same words which both sisters use, I wonder how often they had said them over the previous four days. Why didn't he come? Why didn't he help? I don't get it. This was Lazarus. If the Lord had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Did they feel let down, forgotten, abandoned? For Mary and Martha, the wilderness was psychological, emotional. For Moses, it was also quite physical. From his earliest days, perhaps Moses had felt he was a man with a purpose. He was part of a people who had been carrying a promise, a blessing and of land. Things had taken an odd turn when Jacob's family ended up down in Egypt. Admittedly, they went there for their own preservation during a seven-year famine. But they wound up as slaves. And then Pharaoh decided to kill all the newborn sons. But amazingly, Pharaoh, or amazingly Moses not only survived, 
He was raised right in the heart of Egypt, right under Pharaoh's nose. Surely that had to mean something. And maybe Moses had watched with ever-increasing rage the harsh treatment of his people. And then one day he lost it. He saw an Egyptian beating up a slave and he killed the Egyptian. And perhaps at that stage he thought they might rally behind him and rise up against their slave masters. But nobody wanted to know Posh Boy from the palace. And he had found himself fleeing into the wilderness. Dangerous as it was, it was safer than being in Egypt. If news had got out about him killing an Egyptian. Perhaps the idea that he had any sort of purpose seemed laughable now. And as for the people, they were no closer to a promised land than they had been in Moses' youth. From the way God speaks to Moses from within the burning bush, we get a sense of what's going on in Moses' mind. Either his God didn't know what was happening to the Israelites or he didn't care. Perhaps Moses felt that God hadn't only abandoned him, but he'd given up on the whole people. But from the bush, God responds, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now Moses might have been tempted to think, well, that's all very well. I've heard stories about how you helped them back then. That's ancient history. What about now? But if Moses is tempted to think that God brings that, God brings it right into the presence. He adds, I have seen what's happening. I've seen the cruelty with which the Egyptians are treating the Israelites. I've heard the cry of their longing to be free. I do know what's happening. But there was more than that. God wasn't just sitting on high watching it. God hadn't finished yet. He added, so now I have come down to rescue them. God hadn't forgotten Moses, this people, any of the promises. This God didn't just see and hear what was going on. This God was about to act. He was about to get involved. If Moses was tempted to think of God stuck in the past, perhaps Mary, certainly Martha, were tempted to keep God stuck in some indeterminate future. Martha says, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus says, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha responds, yeah, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection on the last day. Martha has a faith she can believe in God for the future. But what about the pain she's feeling right now, Jesus? But if she's tempted to think of God only in terms of that future, Jesus brings her right into the present. I am the resurrection and the life. In the wilderness, we can draw strength from what God's done for us in the past. We can root ourselves in stories of scriptures. We can draw on our own experiences or the experience of others who have experienced wilderness and emerged from it. I often make a point of reminding you to reflect on blessing that comes into your life, to allow it to really sink in because it can so easily drift past unnoticed. Memory of what God has done in the past can, if we allow it, give us hope when the next struggle comes. 
And we can root ourselves in Scripture and come to see the promises of God. They can give us hope for the future. But in the wilderness, we need more than a God who's stuck in the past or who is waiting for us in the sweet by and by. That God can only get us so far. Wilderness can be a place where we know sorrow, where lament can flow more easily than praise. But the wilderness experiences of what the Bible Bible teaches us is that even here, even now, God does hear. God does care. God is not stuck in the past or waiting in the future. He is not oblivious to or unmoved by our struggles. The God revealed in the burning bush called himself Yahweh. If you're reading what Christians call the Old Testament and see the word Lord in capital letters, that's the Hebrew word that's used, Yahweh. Ancient Hebrews had a lot of names for God. The two main ones were Yahweh and Elohim. And Elohim pointed out to the bigness of God. He could be out there, he could be distant, he could be powerful. But when they wanted to talk about a God who was interested in them, who related to them, who cared about them, that was Yahweh. And that was who was speaking to Moses in the wilderness. And Jesus goes even further when he says, call this God Abba. It's a word which speaks of intimacy, closeness, caring, nurturing. A God who's interested in us. And that's important because how we approach prayer, particularly in wilderness times, will be affected by how we view the one to whom we speak. As Pete Gregg says in God on Mute, our Lent course book, When life feels chaotic and out of control, it is more important than ever to anchor ourselves in the absolute and eternal truth that we are dearly loved and deeply held by the most powerful being in the universe. God welcomes us, however we come. He's not assessing the merits of our requests or the theology of our prayers. God isn't angry or insulted when we turn to him honestly and said, if you're really there, if you really care, where are you? Why do I feel so alone, forgotten, abandoned? He doesn't consider it a lack of faith or a sin when we're honest with him. God can handle our honesty. It's the one place he can really engage with us. He's packed our scriptures full of raw, honest complaint and protest. And he's called it sacred and holy. And he engages with us where we are. With Mary, there's Mary, Martha, there's a kind of cerebral, theological slant. And Jesus speaks into that. With Mary, it's more raw emotion. And Jesus weeps with her. With Moses, there's a sense of injustice at the treatment of his people. But also a sense of his own failure. God plans to deal with both. That doesn't mean that God will just click his fingers and make it all go away. More often than not, we don't get airlifted out of the wilderness. We go through it. But we don't go through it alone. We might struggle to see it at the time. It might be some time before we come to see it. But God is good. He's utterly involved in the details of our lives And he does care. 
If there is one thing I will testify to in my 50 years, it's that even when God has felt distant, and even when I've tried to create distance between me and God, I've come to see I've never been out of his sight. He never stopped caring. And that doesn't mean I live in denial. And nor should you. Whatever wilderness we find ourselves in, we are free to be real, to name how we feel, be that alone, abandoned, forgotten. We are free to be angry, to feel disappointed. God can handle all of it. God can encounter us there. Indeed, God can only really encounter us where we actually are. But even when we reach the end of ourselves and think all hope's gone, with Jesus the last word hasn't been spoken. In the wilderness, all seemed lost to Moses. In Bethany, all seemed lost to Mary and Martha. But they both found that with God, there was another chapter yet to be written. And it may well be that God takes that wilderness experience of yours and uses it to enable you to guide others through the wilderness. Have you ever noticed how many organisations, groups and individuals who help others through the sufferings and struggles of life have often been started or led by people who are touched by it? They can do it because they know. They've been there. And in Jesus we have been there, while we have a God who has been there too, who doesn't stand aloof to the suffering of the world, but has entered into it, who sympathises with us in our struggles, because he has been there, who has been through the wilderness before us. He's not stuck in the past, only good for what he did back then. And he doesn't simply hold out High in the sky when you die of promises for the future. He is with us here and now. He does care. He is interested. He does hear our cry. And he will bring us through. Grace and peace to you. Amen. As it's my birthday, I'm being a little self-indulgent. This next song touches on the themes I've been talking about this morning. And it's by one of my favourite bands. They're called The Choir. And it's got a beautiful chorus which says this. The prayers of every child rise on the winds of tomorrow. The tears of every woman fall on the feet of the man of sorrows. The soul of every creature cries out. The heart of humanity moans. Somebody out there won't leave us alone.